you would encapsulate your wisdom of the last 20 or so years at this as to what makes a great venture capitalist, what is it? What makes a great venture capitalist? So is it that they were a founder, that they worked in tech, that they studied computer science, that they went to a certain university, that they were tall, you know, because that was kind of a benchmark thing. Um, And what came out of it was there was one thing that correlated with the best returns, and that was what we define as risk tolerance, which means the people that had the best lifetime, you know, track records also had failures. Um, Spectacular ones. Well, you can only lose what you put in, so it's you know less than one yeah. X we would yeah. describe as a failure, and they had spectacular outcomes, which is what drove those returns. But yeah, they lost companies. So it's the ability to take risk and invest in something that may not exist yet, that may be capturing a market at the point where it's about you know we call it. They, there's just an ability to kind of see around the corners mm-hmm. and be comfortable taking that risk, which is why. You know, we should say we haven't said this in any of the discussions so far. We really focus on managers that invest early stage, so yeah. seed and Series A. I think you know people that invest later stage is a slightly different breed. There's a lot more information to look at. You can run numbers, you can do things differently. But I think when you're talking about early stage venture capitalists, it's some um, just ability be ability to be comfortable with ambiguity and see into the future a little bit. Amazing. Hi, my name is Catherine Main. Michael has asked me to come and join him on this podcast. I've never done one of these before, so I hope it's okay. Um, I know Michael because I'm a managing director at Horsley Bridge Partners, which is an investor in venture capital. We've known each other for a very long time, so hopefully this will be fun. And I've been asked to name what my core value is. And I think in life, the thing that matters to me most is the relationships um, with the people that matter in my life. Catherine, it's so good to have you here. Uh, I'm excited to welcome Catherine Maine, the quote-unquote mother of Olive, and we'll talk about that some more. On to our Invested podcast. Catherine joined Horsley Bridge in 2003. I can't believe it's that long, Ori. I know, it's crazy. It is crazy. Catherine manages the London office of Horsley Bridge, and prior to Horsley Bridge Partners, Catherine was Senior Vice President of Investments with Claridge, Inc., which had many investments in Israel and is no stranger to Israel. And she was involved in investments in media, technology, consumer, and industrial companies, including the unique Israeli snack, Bomba, which maybe we'll talk a bit about soon. Catherine started her professional career in asset management with Jaroslawski. I'm saying that wrong, Jaroslawski. Jaroslawski. Uh, Fraser in Montreal. She has a BA in history from the University of Calgary and an MBA from the University of Western Ontario as a Canadian expat living in London. Catherine, great to have you here on the show. We can get started. So here's the first question. I don't think I remember the answer. How do we know each other originally? So prior to my joining Horsley Bridge, Horsley Bridge invested in a very early stage venture fund in Israel called Israel Seed. Correct. Which is where you started your venture investing career. And so I don't, I think I met you at Israel Seed, but at some point, um, well, there's a story that goes from there. Yeah, I don't know we, if you want me to take that story forward. I don't remember what it is. So, so is it the is it the 18 month one? Well, I think the story was that it was kind of clear that that partnership might not go forward, <laughs> and we sort of we liked Michael. I'd just met you, but my partners had known you for some time, and we thought you had an interesting future in venture investing. So, I think it was Phil Horsley that made an introduction. 
which led you to your next role with Benchmark Correct. here in Israel. Correct. You know, uh, someone just mentioned me on the way in that he went uh, skiing in Austria. I was really conflicted what to do with that Benchmark offer, apropos values. I, fe- I felt very loyal to the people at Israel Seed Partners, but Benchmark Capital was Benchmark Capital. And I didn't know what to do, and I needed to kind of clear my head. So I took three of my children skiing, thinking that that's a way to clear my head. And from there, I called Phil Horsley and asked him what to do. He's the nameplate on Horsley Bridge. He passed away, unfortunately, a couple of years ago. Um, an incredible human being. And I called him and I said, Phil, I, I'm, I'm really not sure what to do here. I, you know, you're an investor of mine in Israel. See, I know you invest in Benchmark. And he said, what do you think sent your name over to Benchmark <laughs> Capital? I said, okay. <laughs> I get it. So great to have you here. And maybe we'll start uh, with how you became the mother of Olive on some level. Uh, you want to tell everyone the story? Do you want me to no, tell No, I, I think it's kind of a fun story. I think uh, you went to Benchmark and we stayed in touch and you made some great investments there. And I was back in Israel, I think it was 2012. And we organized to meet up and we were sitting outside on the terrace on a Lovely Tel Aviv evening. One floor up from here. One floor up from here. And at the time, I don't think the rest of the world had figured out, you know, that venture capital was actually working in a lot of places outside of the U.S. And we'd seen that happening, and we'd seen some interesting companies start to really scale here in Israel. So I think Wix, which was one you invested in, Waze, Fiverr, things in the consumer space, which up till then wasn't necessarily Israel's domain. But there were a lot of really positive trends happening in tech. And I remember sitting down with you and asking you, because it just felt like maybe now was the time for things to really start taking off in Israel, and maybe there was room for a new kind of venture firm. And I remember sitting there with you saying, "Are you, you know, what a great place to refine your craft as an investor with Benchmark. There's such great people, but is that it? <laughs> Are you going to do anything else? You're a young guy. You've got this big future ahead of you. Thanks for calling me young there. I appreciate that. <laughs> You're still young. Shouldn't there be more? And we just sort of chatted, I think, about what a new venture fund might look like here and something that was super ambitious and capable of building these truly global businesses. And then we started playing fantasy football, which was kind of fun. It was fun. And talked about all the young talents in the industry, some of whom were with funds that um, – had a lot of partners at the top and, you know, was there a way to build something new and different? And so that was a conversation. I thought, well, that's really fun. And then I went back home and a couple months later, I got the call that said, guess what? <laughs> Teamed up with Eden. And we're ready to we're go. starting Aleph. Yeah. And uh, so shared that with my partners and we were excited about it and wanted to lean in right away. And we did lean in right away. You did. We did lots of we didn't know Eden as well, so we did lots of referencing and learned a lot about him and got pretty excited about it and what you were planning to do. So said, uh, you know, we'd like to be part of that in a pretty meaningful way. And thank you. I hope we've made you proud somewhat since you have then. Made, you have made us well, thank proud. Thank you, because yeah. we, we special, uh, especially value the relationship with you. But I want to actually ask you a question based on what you said. Are you an investor or a psychologist? I, I said seriously, it's a serious question. Well, I think we're investors, but we invest in people. Um, so people ask us, you know, what is the core skill of the team of you at Horsley Bridge? And I think it's really understanding people, partnerships, organizations, their motivations, their ambitions, how they conduct themselves, 
how they work together. I think that is our, our job is really to understand people and kind of assess their ability as investors, a lot of which comes down to judgment. And I guess, you know, judgment could be judgment around people, judgment around investment situations. So yeah, most of what we do is really about backing people. You said at the beginning that your core value is relationships with people that you like, admire, feel close to. Do you have to actually like people to do the job you're doing? Or can you kind of be cynical or an introvert or introvert's the wrong word. I mean, can, can you be cynical and, you know, a little bit of a misanthrope? Or do you um, have to really like people? If you think of where we sit in the stack, I think it does help to like people. I think as a firm, we think it's really important to do a good job as a partner to the people that we invest in. So that means, you know, we share insights, we share um, things that we've learned in our almost 40 years in the industry. Um, and you have to be willing to be kind of open, honest, transparent about that if you're going to be a good partner. Um, so I think it really helps if you do like people and if you're, you know, we are always kind of 100% in the camp of the people that we support, like we're the biggest cheerleaders. Um, I think that means... Maybe I shouldn't use the word cheerleader because that always means you're jumping up and down and doing backflips. Biggest supporters and 100% in your camp means we have to be able to you know, interact with you and share, geez, we think you're doing this super well, but also, hmm, this one's got us scratching our head. You know, Help us explain this or help us understand this so that we're sharing you know, feedback, both positive and negative. Um, let's not call it negative, positive and constructive in a really transparent way. And I think that's hard to do if you don't really value people and the relationships that you have with them. You'll you'll stop yourself. You won't you won't be as I think honest and uh, truthful about the things that you need to share. So you're a meaningful limited partner investor in many venture funds, including Olive Anchor Investor and many. Uh, kind of Horsley Bridge is considered the leading light uh, among the leading lights of the fund to funds business that invests in venture capital and you like people, and uh, what you said before about me in my previous room, I'm sure it happens other times as well, that you kind of sense that maybe something may be amiss, uh, may not persist. How do you deliver a message to a group of partners that either says somebody here doesn't fit the mix and you ought to be thinking about this, uh, or alternatively, um, because of something you see in the team dynamic, we're out of here. And we're no longer going to support this fund. That that's got to be pretty dramatic. Um, I'd say it's the har- one of the hardest parts of our job. I don't think it has to be dramatic. It's always difficult, but I think the way we try to manage that is with everybody that we invest in. We've got lots of frequent touch points. So you know, you tell me, we probably drive you crazy. We're like, no, oh, come in Israel. I want to catch up. Let's jump on the phone. Let's talk about this. Can you tell me what's going on with this? So there's there's lots of touch points so that we can kind of, we call it, it's almost like our monitoring is constant diligence, right? So when it comes time you've raised a fund, it's sort of like we kind of know where we stand because we've been in touch. So that should mean we're seeing things develop and we're seeing them as they occur or we're seeing them before they occur, right? Because we're our job is to sort of see these patterns and almost read the tea leaves, if you will. Um 
And so as we see these things happen, it's our job to be responsible at ho about how you communicate that. So we should really never be at a place where a fund that we've been an investor with comes back and says, we're coming back to market and we're raising a new fund. And we go through our diligence process and at the very end of the diligence process we say, no, we're not coming in and they're shocked. That shouldn't happen because it's our job to socialize as part of those constant updates mm -hmm the positives, and the constructive feedback. So if we see issues happening, it's our job to put those on the table, to have the discussion, because remember, we want everybody that we back to be massively successful. So we are in that camp. So it's like, if we see something that we think may impair the ability to do that, it's like, let's talk about this and let's see how we can, and maybe we're completely wrong, right? It's just one point of view. Others might have a different perspective on it, but that's our job, is to be really transparent and constructive along the way. It is not easy, um, but we think that's part of being a good partner. What's the number one reasons that venture capital partnerships come apart or don't work out? Yeah, I'm not sure I have a, <laughs> I don't know if there's a number one answer. I think you can be the top three too. I think there's lots of answers. Um, you know, we get asked often, it's interesting because we meet lots of new funds. Right, And they come in and they've got, here's my track record and here's what I've done and we've got this great partnership and we've known each other for 10 years and we're going to be the best partners ever because we really get along. And so you ask the question, well, how have you constituted yourself? Like what kind of um, arrangements have you made as a general partner? How will you make decisions? How will you decide how will you be accountable to each other? How will you address an issue if something's not going well, how will you even know what it is? Like, how are you going to make each other, make yourselves accountable to each other? So I guess that's one bit of advice we would give new funds is make sure you do that in a really thoughtful way. It's not enough to say, yeah, we're always going to like touch base and it's all going to be fine. Because the reality is it's really hard to make one of these things work. Mm -hmm. So I'd say it's often that people have just not put enough thought into it. They team up, they're super excited about it. And then a couple years down the line, they're like, actually, this person isn't pulling their weight or I don't like their investment choices. And because they haven't constituted themselves well, they don't have a mechanism to deal with it. But, but is it investment choices that breaks them apart or is it values? Is it bad contracting because they don't have a mechanism? Bad con the contract is just what you refer to when it's not working. Right. It's the thought and the process and the discussion before that that really matters. Agreeing on that, like how are we going to work together? And I think that's where people often don't put enough thought. Is, is that investment judgment? Is it values? Is it culture? Like which category does it fit into? There? I think it's culture. I think it's integrity. I think it's that's you know, interesting. Integrity. I think a lot of these things come apart on integrity. Do what I say, say what I do. You know, mm -hmm. I think it's it's holding true to, you know, what you've set out to, you know, accomplish as a team. Have you have you seen partnerships come across and lack of come apart or people leave in lack of truthfulness too? Is that the integrity point? I think sometimes that happens. I think sometimes that you know, interesting. When we went out to raise Olive, I met a person who's a longtime friend of mine, and he said, uh, um, "I'm really should be an LP. We're not going to do a first time fund, though." I said, but "You know me, 15 years," and he said, "Yeah, but we don't know your partner that well, and uh, and first time partnerships come apart 50 percent of the time." And I said, "Wow." that's a big number. And I said, why is that? And we said a combination of ego uh, and a first time partnership and just simple lack of chemistry. And when I drilled down and asked what was lack of chemistry, we're at the bar at the Four Seasons in Palo Alto. Uh, he said, 
Uh, I can't put my finger on it. We just know it happens, and it's a risk we're not willing to take. Why do you take that risk? Because I think to be successful in our business, we have to take risk. So we know that in venture, most of the companies that venture capitalists invest in will fail. Yep. People um, forgot that in the last decade. They absolutely <laughs> forgot it. And, you know, success is driven by a handful of outliers, right? So it's about creating something truly extraordinary. It's the same when we build a portfolio of venture partnerships. Not everything is going to knock it out of the park. But we have to, everything that we back, we have to truly believe that it can generate extraordinary returns. Otherwise, why are we doing it? So, you know, that's kind of part of the way we think about portfolio construction. We can take risk. We should take risk. If we don't take risk, we are going to miss the best new thing. If all you did was say invest in the established brand names, you would best miss the best of the next generation. And I think the thing that we've learned about backing new managers is when we do it, we try to evaluate things to the same bar as everything else in our portfolio. So it's not like, hey, we've got this farm club Let's go right. back a bunch of rookies and see how they do. It's could this team of people perform the same way as the best in the industry? So that's what we're trying to pick. And if they turn out to be that, when they come back to raise fund two, if they're doing the right things and keeping their fund sizes reasonable, there's probably not going to be that much room. So you know, when we do these things, we like to get in and do it in a meaningful way. Like with Aleph, it's like, let's take as big a stake as we can. So if it works, we've, you know, put ourselves in a very good position to continue as a meaningful investor going forward. Do you, how often does it happen that there's like a truism in the venture business that when you sign up to back a venture fund, you barely back two funds. How often does it happen that you don't back the second fund? Yeah, it's pretty rare. Pretty rare. It's pretty rare. Cause I think when you get, if you assume everybody takes two to three years not in 2021, but <laughs> to put the you know to build the portfolio. When you come back to market, there's not going to be a lot to show. Right. You've built a portfolio. Hopefully, the companies sound like they can be extraordinary and not niche. Hopefully, you've got top tier tier one follow on investors. Hopefully, those people are following what you're doing and caring about it. Hopefully, the companies are scaling. The fund model looks the way it should. There hasn't been any kind of weird partnership dynamic or blow up. If you see that, you'll generally do. Do you like most of the GPs you invest in, like as people? I like a lot of them, yeah. I really do. not all of them. Uh, I like people. Do they like each other, you think? I don't think everybody likes each other, no. But they stay together because it's like a marriage of convenience. It's like, you know, they still have admiration and respect. We don't really like them. I think you have to have mutual respect. Mutual respect. You don't have to like the person. You know, I I like Aiden and Tom. I just want to say that. If I look at the partnerships that I, um, I think most of the folks I work closely with, they do really like each other. You can sense that. You can sense that in the culture of certain venture firms. There's just a, there's just a different dynamic, um, and it makes it really fun and energizing to be around those people. So you can you can feel it, you can sense it in the way people interact with each other. If you had to encapsulate your wisdom of the last twenty or so years at this, as to what makes a great venture capitalist, what is it on an individual basis before the firm? Yeah, so we tried to correlate this once, um, which is like a this is like a standard Horsley Bridge story. What makes a great venture capitalist? So is it 
that they were a founder, that they worked in tech, that they studied computer science, that they went to a certain university, that they were tall, you know, because that was kind of a benchmark thing. Um, and what came out of it was there was one thing that correlated with the best returns, and that was what we define as risk tolerance, which means the people that had the best lifetime, you know, track records also had failures. Um, Spectacular ones. Well, you can only lose what you put in. So it's, you know, less than one yeah. X we would yeah. describe as a failure. And they had spectacular outcomes, which is what drove those returns. But yeah, they lost companies. So it's the ability to take risk and invest in something that may not exist yet, that may be capturing a market at the point where it's about, you know, we call it, they, there's just an ability to kind of see around the corners mm -hmm. and be comfortable taking that risk, which is why, you know, we should say, we haven't said this in any of the discussions so far, we really focus on managers that invest early stage. So yeah. seed and series A, I think, you know, people that invest later stage is a slightly different breed. There's a lot more information to look at. You can run numbers, you can do things differently. But I think when you're talking about early stage venture capitalists, it's some um, just ability be ability to be comfortable with ambiguity and see into the future a little bit. Yeah, I think ambiguity and uncertainty is almost a better framing than risk tolerance. I'm not sure about that. I keep thinking about that question. Is it ambiguity and uncertainty or is it risk tolerance? Maybe, but it's just if you know that, um, because I think the risk tolerance bit also matters because when you do have something that is not working, because I think the other thing with venture capital is your scarcest resource is your time. So you have to allocate your resource to the situations that have the potential to be explosive. And if something looks like it's not going to get there, you should be, you know, in the right way possible, diverting your energies in the other direction and being okay with that. You know, being okay, letting something go, making sure that the talent gets redeployed in a better place and not spending, you know, two years struggling with it. So there's an element of tolerance in that as well, I think. So is being a good venture capitalist a set of personality traits? Is it IQ? Is it investment acumen? Is it EQ? I think it's all of those things. All of those things. Yeah. I think it's a very rare specimen that can, um, you know, consistently do it exceptionally well. And that translates into how returns have looked in venture, which I think is something people have forgotten about in the near term. Because, you know, we've in the last decade. Well, I would say, yeah, maybe last decade or call it, you know, 2019 to mm -hmm. sort of 2022. Everybody that came in the door had a fantastic TVPI and great. TVPI. Marketing IRRs, actually, everyone's marketing 100% IRRs. Yeah, those are non-distributed gains, meaning yes. no cash went back to investors. It's the total value of the portfolio or the investments in the portfolio as mark to market or mark to their own market, which is something we're going to come to in a second. Yep. Uh, and you kind of tout this, even though you have actually distributed no cash to your investors. Which is, that's how everybody, you know, presents their yeah. numbers. But I think we were in an environment where, Everything got follow on capital. Yeah, we're so, going to talk about that. you know, everything looked great. It was the Lego movie. <laughs> I didn't see it, but I'm not sure what you're referring to. Sorry. Well, there's a song called Everything is Awesome. Oh. Uh, so but that's, it, how, that's how it was. optimism is important, I think, in the venture business. Do you of course it is. Yeah, you can't yeah. be in this business if you're not optimistic. Yeah, everyone's killing it and crushing it. Yeah, but it's the reality awesome. is, I think our firm's been in the business for 40 years. You realize that, you know, there's cycles. Yeah. And... um Venture is a business that's really tough. It's tough to take 
an idea and turn it into a multi-billion dollar company. Mm-hmm. That is, is happening faster today than it ever has, but it doesn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. And along the way, some of those that looked super promising will fail. Before I come back to how we mark the portfolios, or which I'll come back to the, the venture capital inside baseball, do you care about the values of the investors themselves? Does that matter to you? Do, do you probe that? Well, we spend an awful lot of time with them, asking them about themselves, their journey, their motivations, their ambitions, how they work together. So, yeah, we get a sense of that. Um, but it's not like there's a sheet that says tick the box. If you see this value, it's sort of a... You don't have sheets in general that tick the box. No. You have copious notes. Anyone who's ever sat We just with take lots of people, notes. Yeah. Copious notes. It's like a firm culture. Yeah. I'm, I'm afraid actually to say things in meetings with you because I'm sure that somebody's going to trot out a notebook from like 10 years ago saying yeah, you said well, this. Fred Giafrida once did that to me. Sometimes Lance, one of my partners, puts a joke in the middle of one of his memos about Canada to see if I actually read it. <laughs> The copious notes thing is, is, and do you care about the values of the underlying portfolio companies? That's something that we really have no say over. What we do is we back partnerships mm-hmm. and we trust the investment judgment of mm-hmm. those people. I think we invest in venture capital, which is about backing ideas and innovation that are going to make the world better. And I think great founders tend to be mission driven. And so if they're successful, then that translates into returns. I think what we really care about from a, like one thing that I think for us really matters is when we can deliver great returns to our limited partners. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at them by count, the largest constituents would be foundations and endowments. So they're giving money back. It would be pension funds. So, you know, helping improve the returns of, you know, people's retirement income. So that's super some, important today. That's actually Inflation. something that we can have some influence over. Yeah. But when we invest in a partnership, we trust those folks to make the best investments. Is mission driven a cliche? Possibly. Okay, I was just wanted to know. Uh, I actually go back to the the inside baseball venture before moving on. I hope I'll make you laugh. So um we had an olive annual meeting some years ago in, in what I call the go-go days of the teens uh, and the late teens in particular and into 2020. Uh, and uh, we have what we refer to here as a uh, realistic view of portfolio values. And there was a fair amount of pressure on us to actually show uh, what the last round value is. So uh, for those who don't know how you value venture capital for those, by the way, no one knows how you value venture capital portfolios, but there are kind of rules that you try to follow even though they're not real. Uh, you'll excuse me for saying that. Uh, and so there's two basic methodologies. One is to create some sort of algorithm that, that tries to find what is the actual book value of these businesses. And the other is to mark them to the last round of funding, which during the teens and up to 2021 was, was, was often way higher uh, than what you'd call a, a, a book value. And to the point you made earlier, people marked their IRRs or TVPIs to the last round valuations. As you know, we didn't. I think there's yes. a couple other firms that didn't. Actually, there are quite a few firms that did not. Oh, great. Yeah, I would say if you look at year-end 2022 or, you know, kind of June 2022 oh, after you know, the yeah. markets went in the other direction and people started looking at this, I think 
many investors that have been in venture for some time were actually much more cautious about taking last round valuation marks. And I would say newer firms that had less of that history and experience of things can go up and things can go down would uh, mark things at LRV. So I think part of it is LRV, le- last, round last round valuation. Part of it is level of sophistication and experience. I also think there are firms that have you know long successful track records that you know they have supportive LP bases that kind mm-hmm. of understand what's in the mix there. I think sometimes that's a little bit different to a new fund that's trying to prove you know we can deliver returns like the big guys. The question I'm interested in around this is, do you find there's a difference between when you start in this business now in short-term versus longer-term outlook, right? Because the longer-term view would be to kind of keep things muted, um, whereas the short-term one is like, you're not going to get back to market and, and get after this. Or is it just kind of always first-time funds, to your point, try to market a little higher and people more experienced, less so? I don't know. I think it might be a bit of the latter, but I think it goes with the cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I started... With Horsey Bridge, we'd be preparing our uh, information for our annual meeting. Phil Horsey would say, you know, quarter to quarter, it's like watching the grass grow. There's not much that happens in venture. You're not going to see much movement in the numbers. So you try to think of creative ways to show to your limited partners, there's this amazing stuff happening with these early stage technology companies that nobody had heard of. And then the last couple of years, it was just like, yeah, every quarter, it was like, look at look at the... Um, the change in the numbers. So part of that is cycle, but it's also partly stuff just growing much, yeah. much faster. Like we're spending a lot of time talking about macro. What drives this industry from the very beginning to today is what's going on with the underlying technology trends. And we're now living in a world where, you know, we fundamentally believe this is a multi-decade shift towards things becoming more and more digital. The entire world is connected through these little phones that are like power your lives. Driving us all um, crazy a bit. You drive you crazy. Now you try to figure out how to spend less time on it, but nobody can figure out how to live without it. Workforces are declining. We need you know ways to improve productivity. Like the way that these things are going to happen at the big problems that the world is facing around climate and health and education software, technology, it's just growing much, much faster. So that's part of the reason why, you know, you can see those numbers move in such a positive trajectory as well. So this a micro, micro business in which a tiny number of companies, even at the level of you, which is above us, delivers the majority of the returns. And by the way, I'd imagine a tiny number of partnerships also delivers the majority of the returns in the whole venture landscape. We have a stat in our uh, intro book, I think, that says we've backed 5% of the venture industry globally and been in about 80% of the billion dollar plus outcomes. So that would suggest, yes, that it is a fairly, there's always room for new and there's lots of great people that aren't in our portfolio that have delivered great performance, but yeah, it's fairly concentrated. Every time I turn up to see you or you turn up to see me, you ask me, okay, what's the key value driver of, of this fund? And you drill us on that appropriately. Because it's one company in a portfolio that needs to deliver 25x or so, even better, in order for these business to work. Or multiple in the same fund. That works really well, too. Yeah. That 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 works works even better. But I want to get back to the human dynamic of this. Have you identified in the entrepreneurs, kind of a level below, 
what makes those 25 Xers or 50 Xers come? Yeah, I think that's probably more a question for you um, because you're at the coalface dealing with these folks every day and seeing those dynamics. You hear different stories on what makes them um, unique. I think we've heard from venture capitalists that sometimes it's a team, it's people that can hire better than themselves. They know their strengths, they know their weaknesses, they know how to add fantastic people. So when you hear about some of these really amazing companies, it comes around to here's who they were able to add and how they've been able to work together. Mm -hmm. So you'd know much more about that than I would. Um, But I think there's probably a pretty special quality around the ability to build fantastic teams. I want to shift gears for a second. You spent decades coming to Israel now. You worked for an Israeli company even before. Take me back to your first trip here. What you saw, what it was like. Oh, that's fun. Uh, It's changed a lot, I would say. Um, it's changed a lot. It's it's much more international than it was when I first came. The l- number of high rises on the um, way in from the airport is staggering. When I first came here, I think the only uh, we always used to stay at the the Hilton Hotel, which because it was the you know one sort of international hotel in Israel, and in Tel Aviv. <laughs> they, in Tel Aviv, Jerusalem yeah. Had the King Jerusalem had nice hotels. And they were just like so, the service was so terrible. They were so, <laughs> am, am I not allowed to say no, that? No, you can say that. It, yeah. You, by you, the way, you know, I, made, I, I moved to Israel from Manhattan, from New York right. City. And everyone said Tel Aviv. And I looked around, this is like, they called it the city that didn't sleep, but that was New York. And this right. time it was not the city that didn't right. sleep on the same level. And there were no high rises. Yeah. Like, but it always had the same, it just had amazing energy. Like I remember going and visiting companies in these you know, shabby old buildings in Ramat Aviv, and they'd be doing the most incredible things with computers. So there was there was that energy, and it was just young and vibrant, and um, you know that that hasn't changed. What has changed? And maybe I should ask it this way: you, you invest in many places around the world. What do you think makes Israel unique in that regard? Well, look, there's always been. Um, you know, just a very strong base of technical talent, um, you know, operational talent, teams that know how to work through projects and build software and build companies. Like, I think that's very core um, to Israel because of the experience that people go through in the military. I think the biggest change in Israel venture is really the ability to deliver big outcomes. So we came here for many years and people would celebrate, we sold a company for $100 million. And we'd be like, well, great, your fund is $150 million and you owned 10% of that company, so that's $15 million returned on $100. That's fine, but that is not going to turn you into a venture firm that the whole world wants to invest in. And I think sometimes it's hard to believe unless you've lived the journey, but once the venture industry here started seeing some of those really big outcomes... I think the confidence grew and, you know, the number of companies that have, you know, been able to be fund returners has developed and changed. And that's been a big difference. It's almost as iconography, right? Who can I look up to in this business? And, you know, I know for me, by the way, the time I spent at Benchmark Capital. Yeah, some pretty like amazing people there. Amazing people, you know, Bruce, Bill, Kevin, Bob, uh, Peter. His team was amazing. And uh, for me, that was just a aspirational learning experience. You, you know, how much can I suck in while, you know, while I'm around this table? 
Um, and I think the same thing is true of Israel, right? You know, it's like the Wix guys and the Monday guys and the Fiverr guys have created an aspiration in the in the next generation. That's super important. How much do you think that happens in the venture capital ecosystem in Israel? Oh, you you can answer that question better than I can. I'm not sure I can. I got my experience of one in my little. Well, you've you been know, in you've been in a here. couple different firms. You've been here for a long time. Yeah, but you're seeing it from the outside. Your perspective's better. You mean, do you think a young person in Israel can say, I want to be like that venture capitalist? Yeah, and can learn from an aspirer, et cetera. Or is it harder because it's just a smaller pond and, you know, the hits haven't come to the same level they have you know, as, an, as an Uber? Look, I think the industry here has evolved. I think there was a period of time where um, generational transition mm-hmm. wasn't something I would describe Israel as being great at and making sure that there was a great crop of next generation investors, that the reality of technology is that people that are 20 years old have grown up with it and they understand it in ways much better than us old folks do. So I think Israel's improved on that front in terms of being able to, you know, recognize young talent and giving them the opportunity to grow. But there was a point in time where that was not so much the focus, I'd say. How do you, you know, I think about the cycles that you mentioned before and valuation fluctuations, and there's a lot kind of not seen in the venture world because it's like, it's not mark to market. It's not a stock market. You say, you know, you said before, Phil Horst says like, you're watching the grass grow, mm-hmm. you, you don't see it. And you kind of try to explain, oh, this is really interesting over here. How do you develop trust in a manager that you're actually getting a real scoop on what's going on, a real look at How do you develop that trust? We ask, we have a lot of touch points. We ask a lot of questions. I tell my kids that's basically what my job is. I just ask questions all day long, probably really annoy people in doing it. It's what kids ask why all the time also. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we what do a lot answer? of that, and I think, and we listen. Yeah, and, and you develop trust? Like, and why then, do you trust us? Why do we trust you? We do. Yes. Okay. So why do you trust us? Because I think you give us the you give us the goods. We ask the questions. You give us the answers. Okay. You trust me? Yes. Okay. Well, we wouldn't be here if we didn't. <laughs> okay. Good. Good. So when I first signed up at Horsley Bridge, there were no women that I can remember. Elizabeth came later. You came. She after joined her. out. Kate, she came after you, right? Kate Murphy, our COO, and myself. Joined at the same time. Okay. And then Elizabeth Obershaw. So we joined in 2003 and Elizabeth joined in 2007. It was a pretty male-dominated room. And even this world was, you know, there was Kelly and Christy and uh, not a Horsley Bridge. Right. right? Kelly at Adam Street Mm -hmm. and Christy at uh, Hewlett Foundation. But there were a lot of guys uh, around. How did that feel when you first joined? And you were in a remote office too here, you know, in London. Yes. Yeah. Look, they. I decided to join Horsley Bridge because I thought they were an amazing team of people. Um, my, Was it hard? What joining Horsley Bridge? Yeah, my, I think they're amazing people too. But. No, no, it no. was uh, the. They were very, very thoughtful in the whole get to know you interview process, and it was like nothing I'd experienced before. So the first time I met with them, I met with Phil and Fred Jafrida and Lance Cottrell in the London office, and I think I was there for seven hours. 
Exhausted. And I was like, what was that? <laughs> and I sort of had asked, I met them through a headhunter and I'd asked him, I said, should I like kind of sell what I've done? And he said, no, just listen, answer their questions, have a conversation. And so they were really trying to get to know me as a person, as an individual. And I think what was most important to them was, is this somebody that can carry the flag for our firm and do it in a job in a way that we would be um, happy with? Is this somebody that would be a great team player and work well within our construct? Is this somebody that we can trust? Is this somebody that we like and can have fun with? You know, so the the spec was, it was about cultural fit. I think everybody that came in the door could do the job, but it was, well, not do, you know what I mean? Like had the CVs look great. I'm sure most of the CVs that they saw were, you know, exceptional, but it was really about, they were spending a lot of time on the cultural fit. Hey, tell me about the cultural fit. What, what, what were they looking for? What's the culture of Horsley Bridge that makes it work? Well, curiosity is a really big part of it. So mm -hmm. you have to be able to ask questions. That's what we do all day long. Mm -hmm. So that um, is important. Um, really a love of learning because this is a business where you're always learning because you're never going to get it right all the time. So mm -hmm. um, I think being comfortable with that. Um, look, if I look at my partners, they are just super smart, thoughtful, um, you know, human beings that I think are also just incredibly good people. Um, they do a fantastic job managing relationships. As you say, like, are you, are you an investor or psychologist? I think they've got um, those qualities of investment judgment, people judgment in spades. How do you stay curious over long periods of time? Oh, how could you not in this business? How could you not stay curious when you're interacting with people all the time? People will always surprise you. Um, and in an industry which is all about innovation and change. What are you curious about outside of this industry and outside of work? If I had time to read, I'm kind of curious about everything, to be honest. I'm curious about, you know, I've got young kids. I'm curious about how their brains work, how they learn, what's going on in their worlds, um, you know, it's, when you figure it, it out, tell me. I, my kids are yeah, older than yours, I know, but, but it's just out, it's such a different environment um, to grow up in. Yeah, I think you know, if you there's just so much. What are you right? doing to spark your kids' curiosity? Uh, ask them questions. You used to ask your kids a lot of questions. Yeah, probably drives. Asked, it asked me a lot of questions. They, I try to ask them questions. They, I think it drives them crazy. Uh -huh. But yeah, I love to know what they're thinking. I love to know what's going on with them. I love to know what you know. What was the highlight of your day what was the thing that drove you crazy who made you laugh like what was fun you don't have teenagers yet right no okay call me back i'll keep asking them but they may <laughs> just ignore me call me back what do you love to learn about outside of work again if you have time what's like the thing that interests you most i don't know if there's something that interests me most but i'm interested in other cultures um you know love to travel um, I like sport. I'm always fascinated. You know, it goes kind of goes back to people. You know, when you're watching a sport and, you know, sometimes it's just about who's winning. I'm always like, what's their story? You know, what's their <laughs> journey? How did they get there? How, what did they do? I just find that really fascinating. I remember when the um, iPad came out 
And my husband bought me an iPad. I said, why do I need an iPad? And he said, because you, when you watch television, you drive me crazy asking all these questions about these athletes. He said, if you have an iPad, at least you can look it up on the internet. And so I can just watch the sport and you can understand <laughs> who this person is. You can do it quietly and not drive me nuts. I have this interview question. My interviews start like this. I say, tell me about you. They always inevitably start from like, you know, their current job or their first job. I said, no, tell me from the womb. I want to know from the womb. And I find people tell their stories. It's it's interesting. Right. You learn a lot about them by the way they tell their stories from. I have to ask you uh, uh, two questions uh, that are kind of related. Do you care if your daughter is kind of following your footsteps, your three daughters, if they kind of become an investor or an executive? Is no, I, I want them to find their own path. Their own path. Yeah, I'd love for them to find something that they are truly passionate about and they love doing. They ask me, you know, when I travel or when I'm doing these, what they call blah, blah, Zoom calls at night, mommy, why do you, why do you have to do that? Why do you work? And I say, you know, I really, truly love what I do. I find it so interesting and it, it kind of, it energizes me and I'd love for them to find something to do that makes them feel the same way. By the way, a true story about my, my daughter, when she was in elementary school, she was called in by the principal and asked to tell about her family. And I'm translating from the Hebrew. And the principal asked her, you know, what do your parents do? It said, well, what does your father do? And my daughter said, he sits in totally boring meetings all day. Mm -hmm. So we have the same job. <laughs> yeah. So um, you founded an organization at the end of 2015 to inspire women to join European private equity. I was one of 12 co-founders. It's called Level 20. Yes. Right? Why'd you do this? Um, like, who cares? Well, we cared. There's okay, 12 good. of us who were all women working in different capacities in private equity and venture capital in Europe, most of us based in London. And we used to just get together and catch up. We'd have lunch. It was great. They're unbelievable women super successful in their um, careers. And they were just great peers. Like it was a really nice network, really supportive of each other. And, um, you know, we kind of just helped each other. When people were having children, it was like, what's the maternity policy at your firm? We just shared perspectives and it was really valuable. And one day someone said, you know, I've sort of looked around and realized that the industry hasn't changed that much since we started. The percentage of women in senior roles wasn't massively different. And we thought, well, maybe we should invest some of our energy into trying to change that. And so that's really where Level 20 came from. Um, it came from a group of women who had bonded together working in the same industry and had really benefited from having the support of each other, saying, could we sort of pay it forward in and some way? How's it, how's it going? I'm I'm not actively involved anymore, but I am blown away by how big it has become. So, and what changed? Like, what was the key change? You think? Well, I I mean, just what level twenty has turned into is fantastic. It's now a pan-European network with thousands of members, um, and you know some very valuable programs, including mentoring program where senior men and women in private equity and venture would mentor the next generation. And some of those early mentees have then started doing it for the next generation. So it really has become 
a means of pay it forward with the mission of, you know, sort of once you manage to recruit people into the industry, you work really hard to promote and retain them. And I think we're seeing that happen. So the mission was to have 20% of um, decision-making roles in private equity be women by 2020. We didn't get there, but I think we've made fantastic progress in the percentage of senior senior women um, today, as well as the pipeline that is growing for that percentage to increase. So I want to ask you a, what's a what's a hard question. Um, there's been a big push for diversity uh, in the venture capital business. Uh, it takes a lot of time and money to train a venture capitalist. It can be expensive. Uh, crash a bunch of F-16s. Somebody once said in order to uh, to get someone. And, and sometimes uh, one could argue uh, that there's a tension between returns and diversity right now, or a values-based judgment around diversity versus the need to deliver returns to pensioners, to foundations, to people doing good things with the money as, as you did. How, how do you think about that in the current environment we're in? Yeah, it's a really good question, and it's one that's got answers probably on a couple of different dimensions. So when I look at the diversity question as a mother of three young girls, I 100% want my girls to have the opportunity to go out and do anything they want in the, this world and do any job that they set their minds to. And that was actually something that when, you know, the co-founders of Level 20, when we came up with this idea of starting this initiative, that was something that was at the back of my mind. I've spent you know many years in an industry that has been predominantly male. Not much has changed. I've loved being part of this industry. Wouldn't it be great for them to experience something as fun and rewarding, exciting as this? So I want that opportunity to be available um, to women. When you ask the question as a limited partner, um, our first job as Horsley Bridge is to deliver the very best returns to our investors, to the people that support us and you know put us in business. And we know that venture capital is a really, really hard business to get right. So it's very hard for us to even say, okay, these are, you know, we're gonna make mistakes all the time, but we're gonna pick these managers because we think they've got the best shot of giving our limited partners the very best returns that we can. So predominantly that is our job. From a, um, I think there's other entities that can invest purely from a values basis and say, okay, we're going to go out and experiment and back teams that are diverse for the purpose of them being diverse. When I look at our portfolio, I can see considerable change in the diversity of the um, partnerships that we backed because people have been making a very conscious effort to improve the diversity in their partnerships because they believe it is going to improve their returns. They're conscious that the founder um, founders today are much more diverse than they were, let's say, 20 years ago. It's much easier to attract um, young female founders if you have great female talent within your firm. So the smart firms understand that and they have been building diversity in their partnerships such that they are able to work with the Barry Vest founders today who've come from a much more diverse set. They also appreciate that diversity of opinion and experience around the table 
should make for better investment returns. We've seen that. I think there's data that shows this is the case in the public markets. It's too early to see it in venture because the change is still happening. I have this thesis that values create economic value. Um, something I've written about in my books, uh, et cetera. I, I tend to agree with you. This is tricky, this venture business, and it's it, it's hard. And it's specifically hard, I think, from your perch, where you are to tell the funds, the, the GPs, us in this case, who to hire. That's Yeah, we would, but, we would never tell a GP who they should hire. We would never tell them, you know, can you imagine telling somebody who you should go into partnership with? Um, you know, we would never tell a GP what they should invest in. Our job is to meet those people and try to understand the dynamics of those teams, those strategies, the way they operate, and see if that's a fit for what we do. But it's not our job to tell them what to do. And and ultimately, it it needs to deliver the economic value to your LPs who are doing good work with that money and people's pensions need to be paid. And uh, it feels like what you're saying is you can't sacrifice, uh, you have to choose the very best partnerships to invest in because you got to deliver those returns to people. You're not an impact fund to say that or a government fund that has diversity goals irrespective of returns. The key driver for Horsley Bridge, because you compete every day, is, is returns. And uh, you believe that the diversity services entrepreneurs better so you can get in the next generation of founders uh, better. But the guiding light has to be the returns at the end of the day. And there is this underlying belief that sure. improved diversity will show up in the returns. Yeah, so values, we hope, will create value in the venture capital business also. I, I think it's the same as a mission-driven founder. If I, I think when you say it's all about returns, the returns only happen if exceptional things happen. So the mission-driven founder, if they solve a massive problem, generates returns. They right. don't start by saying, I'm just going to go make a lot of money. I think it's the same thing in our business. If we back exceptional people that think the right way about the trends that are shaping the world today, they will be capable of finding and working with the best founders who you know build those companies, and hence the returns follow. Can- so the returns are the outcome of the this you know amazing recipe of great people and ideas working together um, to solve problems. This comes back to the notion that the venture capital business is a deeply human business that requires human connection between an investor and a founder, as the case may be, a belief in the mission, and then your belief in those partnerships. And it's the ability to create those deeply human connections with the diversity of humanity that actually we think may drive the return. We think that matters a lot. We have met some new managers that are doing this with a lot of data and trying to come up with algorithms that spit out the answer. Um, we're a bit skeptical of that. I think That makes you, me feel better because I'm yeah, not very good at that. No, I think data can help. Um, but again, as we've mentioned before, this is a really ambiguous business, what we do. So I think you have to make... Um, you have to be capable of making judgments around people, and I'm not sure. Look, I, I think the software is amazing, and maybe it will be doing that in a few years' time. Hopefully not, but I don't think it's there yet. <laughs> That's a very thoughtful answer. Thank you. Thanks. What motivates you to get out of bed every morning? Well, my kids wake. No, <laughs> I have to get up and make them breakfast. Oh, come on. 
Making breakfast motivates you every morning? No. Okay. What do they eat for breakfast every morning? My, my husband likes to make them pancakes. He's actually pretty good on breakfast. Okay. What's the problem in the world you most want to fix? That I most want to fix? I think I would like to know that my children will get to experience the natural world in the way that we grew up with. What does that mean? I just worry a little bit about, um, you know, their ability to access nature on a planet that is, you know, consuming as much as it consumes. Is, is that a climate change comment? Is it a consumerism comment or is it like it's a, probably a combination. behind an iPhone comment? No, I think it's probably a climate question. I just want to know that that natural world exists for them. But how old are your kids now? Uh, eight and ten. Do, do they have smartphones? No. No. Do you limit their time on devices? Yes. Do they read books? They read like crazy. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Do you, you incentivize can't... them, by the way, to read books? No, they just love to read. They love to read. Do they like Zoom? Because mommy likes Zoom. No, the only thing they like to do on Zoom is put silly hats on me when I'm on a Zoom call. <laughs> do you like Zoom? No, I'm so sick of it. No. I Look, I think... It enabled us all to run our businesses in a really efficient way when um, we were all locked up at home. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was pretty impressive that the world did continue to operate for the two years that most of us weren't actually able to get out and meet with people. But I'm very glad that we are back in the real world connecting with humans in person again. I'm, I'm glad you're here. Thank you. What gets you emotional? Sad movies. Um, What's a sad movie you've seen? Well, I haven't watched a movie in a long time. Yeah. I tend to fall asleep in them. Me too, by the way. We started watching my wife and I, The Fablemans, because she wanted to, and uh, I'm not exactly sure what we're up to because... You fall asleep. Kind of. Yeah. I think when you are um, kind of high energy, go, 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 things like passive, you know, watching television, I can actually fall asleep in the movie theater as well. Wow. Yeah. It's a, it's a real skill. It's a real skill. I haven't in a while yeah. either because there's kind of no point going if you're just going to fall asleep. <laughs> How do you want to be remembered at the end of your life? Other um, than as the mother of Olive. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think as a person that was a great friend, mom, wife, you know, again, I said what really matters is the relationships in life. Mm -hmm. um, I think when you strip it all away, that is what it comes down to. Um, so somebody that was there as a, you know, true friend, partner. In 100 years, they're going to write the biography of Catherine Maine. Oh, what's, my gosh. I can't think of anything more boring. Who would do that? What's the title? Um, she lived, she loved, she laughed. Okay. I need to wrap back before we wrap up to... Wind back to, to one question. This is a, your business and mine is filled with uncertainty. It has long valleys, uh, troughs, um, and then an exhilarating peak moment mm -hmm. where something big uh, happens. And... On that, I want to ask two questions. One is, how do you maintain kind of equanimity, for lack of a better word, in 
these long downish or flatline periods before something good happens and kind of the optimism that something good will happen. And then, no, why don't you answer that question? I'll ask the second part of the question in a second. Yeah, I think part of it comes from having it seen, having seen it happen in environments where people believed nothing was happening. Mm -hmm. So if you spend all your time focused on the macro big picture, you won't actually, you know, and this is the benefit of what we do is we see these things happening every day. You're interacting with the people, you're interacting with the companies that are making this change. But go back to 2008, 2009, we had the, you know, global financial crisis, credit had disappeared. Nobody was ever going to raise any money again. Yeah, you know, there was that rest in peace, Sand Hill Road, ventures completely broken. So I remember speaking to some of our venture capitalists in that time frame, and they said, yeah, we've really had to scale back spend. We've cut back on marketing. You know, we're just being really careful with our cash because we don't know how things are going to play out. Fair enough. You'd go see them six months later, and they'd say, wow, we're a little bit surprised. We scaled back, but a lot of this stuff is, maybe it's not growing 100%, but it's growing 50%. It's growing virally. Like these businesses are actually continuing to grow in an environment where everything else was going backwards. And that is the power of the technology trends. You know, think back to the innovations that were happening at that point in time, iPhone, shift to the cloud. These underlying trends are massive and monumental and they are continuing to grow and change our world. So I think it is a, once you've seen that, you know, and it was probably back in 2013, maybe 2014, people were like, wow, look, this venture stuff works. That's because you're sitting up here looking at what's going on at the macro level. So I think once you've seen that and you've lived through it and you understand the power of technology, digital software, I think that's what helps you stay the course, as well as a belief that we have you know, in our little firm that if you back the very best venture firms in the world who are capable of working with the very best founders, they're going to give you a stake in those great ideas and innovation that's going to be at the forefront of that trend. So um, once you've lived through it, I think it becomes pretty unshakable. So I want to bring it back to finish to your kids. So you said you want your kids to be able to experience this world in a uh, experiential way. Um, and you look at technology and on some level, parts of technology and companies we've all backed. Sure. Have perhaps had a negative influence on the world, some positive, some negative. How do you think about that in the, in the business that we're in, in the world we're in of, of investing in these companies? And you know, sometimes you lose your money, sometimes you make your money, but in kind of the long-term impact uh, on our society and our environment, on the world that your kids will experience, do you ever cringe and, and how do you think about that? Look, I think you have to believe that some of this, you know, again, it comes down to the founders and the problems that they want to solve. And I'm hopeful that some of that comes up with solutions or improvements in some of the issues the world is facing. There's actually a very significant increase in the number of companies we see entering our portfolio that have some way of trying to address climate issues. Um, so people are investing their energies in those things. I have far more confidence in, 
you know, entrepreneurs and founders um, in the innovation, being able to change those things than I do in big central governments, you know, putting some regulation in place and saying, okay, by this date, it must look like this. Well, how does it look like this? It has to come from innovation. So I think that is one reason why I think we have to keep backing the very best, you know, ideas, the very best minds, the very best thinkers. They're going to come up with ways to improve the world. So I've got... uh, Is innovation values neutral? Is innovation values neutral? I don't know. To me, innovation is about positive change. Positive. Absolutely. Sometimes there are negative consequences, but it's general positive. Absolutely. Yeah, we wouldn't be doing this if we didn't believe in it. I think so too. I'm just checking. Yeah. Yeah. Catherine, thanks for joining us. You can find more about Horsley Bridge at www.horsleybridge.com. That is H-O-R-S-L-E-Y-B-R-I-D-G-E. And follow Catherine on LinkedIn. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us five stars on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to it. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Catherine. Thanks for being the mother of all of (laughs) us. Thanks.